Hi, Jen. <laughs> Hello, Tisha. How's it going? It's good. I do wish our audience could see you because your hair is on point today. You follow me on Instagram. It's in my feed. <laughs> I was celebrating the fact that I have good hair today. Um, <laughs> can we just, I need to acknowledge right now, because when y'all are going to be listening to this episode, Tisha's going to be in Mexico and we're all going to be hating on her. So <laughs> that's just the reality of the situation. <laughs> I am going to be having fun in the sun. Yeah. So that is oh, me. Speaking of which, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Tisha was talking about when she received passports for her kids and the yes. mail carrier that rocked her world and if you don't recall that you need to go back and listen a couple episodes and for more about Tisha's wild life growing up you should listen to our episode on Patreon yeah for and sure the follow-up to that or the the um, continuation of that episode will be coming out in about a week or so mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah that was my wild childhood so today yes this is so random but today, uh, my little one fully just like walked up to me and copped a feel because like, why not just squeeze a boob? And well, she's, like, been, she's been known to do that, though, too. Right. That's not obsessed. abnormal. No, that's not abnormal for this one. But usually it's more like we're cuddling or like she. She's already hugging me. This was just like, she just walked up to me and grabbed my boob. I was like, hey. Like casual boob grab. What's okay. up? And she's All like, right. well, I don't have my own yet. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I mean, cool. Does she think that's what you do when you have them? You just like grab them? Well, she said, I want to get this right. She said, well, yeah, because then it will be like having my own personal squishy that I didn't have to pay for. <laughs> And that just summarizes parenting right there. Just like conversations. So, but since she doesn't have her own, my breasts are her personal squishies that she didn't have to pay for. Because when you become a mother, like you don't own your body anymore. It is not yours. Oh, I've claimed mine back. (laughs) Or so they think. (laughs) Mine is mine now. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. But yeah, she... uh, she loves the boobs. I don't I mean, say. <laughs> some people just do. Yeah. I mean, my husband was laughing because he's like, well, I've been doing that for 16 years. <laughs> <laughs> Is John a boob man? I don't know. I guess maybe. wonder if that's something that you pass on. <laughs> maybe. Could it be? <laughs> I mean, it's possible. Yeah, I think so. I I mean, I don't know. I have no idea. I I mean, yeah, no, she definitely, Adelaide definitely uh, loves boobs. She has repeatedly told me that she can't wait to have her own. And, you know, I was talking to her once about, not that long ago, about like, she's going to be an old lady one day. And she's going to have wrinkles too because there's a whole conversation about wrinkly skin. And she was like, ew, no. Are my boobs going to be wrinkly? Is she said, that? no. She's like, I don't want to be old. I don't want to have wrinkles. I do want to have boobs though. 
like <laughs> it really is like a thing that is on her mind it is like right here it's right at the top of her brain that's yeah amazing. and then my my older daughter who's probably closer to actually having boobs like does not want them I could care less but yeah anyways let's talk about boobs today I mean, I, you know, I feel like we talk about poop recently in an episode. We did. Last week we, we talked about poop, <laughs> you know, I feel like this conversation would be better served in front of the episode we actually released today where we talked to Lisa, because I feel like we could have had this conversation with her. Absolutely. That's yeah. not the episode you're going to hear, but if you ha- didn't listen to last week's episode, you should actually listen to that either before or after continuing yes. with this episode. Today, we are going to hear from Nadia George, who is, yeah, I said that wrong. It's, it's Nadia, isn't it? Because I always say it wrong. I always say Nadia. Yes, we are going to be listening to Nadia George, who I just loved her. She was her. so wonderful. I to really talk enjoyed to. And it's she has a connection, which I won't go into, but to a former guest. And mm-hmm. the ease at which it was to talk with both of them, it like, it just makes so much sense to me. That they're friends. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, it's just, it, Absolutely. It, it, yeah. When I was even listening back and editing, I was like, yeah, I, these, these are some freaking amazing women that I'm so fortunate that we get to talk to. And just so you guys know, if you have a story that you either feel called to share, you feel like people could benefit from hearing, you feel like you simply could benefit from sharing it, you can submit your story to us. Um, if you follow us on IG, there's a link there. If you go to our website, www.nowwhatpod.com, make sure to subscribe to Patreon. Make sure to share, follow, like, rate, review, all of those things, every single thing, any of those things that you do supports us and the work we're doing and helps us to continue to make this show. And we want to do that. So enjoy the episode. Hi, and welcome back to Now What? That's you. I'm Tisha. (laughs) Oh, I'm Jen. And that was Jen. I was waiting for her to introduce herself, but you know, that's okay. Anyways, we are being joined today by actor and activist Nadia George. Nadia, I found you because you are friends with a former guest Fallon that we had. Yes, yeah, Yeah, she's amazing. She's uh, yes, she's actually my spirit sister. She's also um, my new. My indigenous name is Thunder Woman and hers is White Thunder Woman. So it was quite interesting how we made that connection. Oh, that's yes. so amazing. And now that you mentioned that actually in her episode, when she introduced herself, she actually, I think she actually mentioned to us that she knew somebody else with like a similar name. And that is oh, and that's you. you. <laughs> yeah, it's me. Unless we've got another spirit sister floating around. Out there no, that's wild. Cool that's too. really, that's really awesome. <laughs> Yeah. So we had to have you on then without even realizing it. (laughs) So you are here in Toronto and you're an activist and public educator. What is like your passion in, in that? Yeah, that's, you know, I think for me being an indigenous person who had a parent that was 
physically affected by contaminated water. You know, I'm very open about my story. So my father was in the Walkerton jail when the Walkerton water crisis happened. And although I'm urban indigenous and my father was as well, so we didn't live on a reservation that was under any type of boil water advisory. He had always really reminded me that this, you know, the clean water um, initiative was something he really wanted to get into. And this is going back, um, you know, in the 1990s. So the toxic water situation has been an ongoing thing for a really, really long time. And I think Canada's um, government has done a really great job of hiding it and sweeping it under the rug. And then when he was in Walkerton and that happened, um, you know, he wrote to me and also called me and I could just feel the pain in his letters and hear the sadness in his voice. And what really shocked me was how he kind of put everything about himself aside. And he was like, well, I'll be okay. And they'll get this fixed really quickly. But this is a reminder to show us that, you know, the differences in regards to uh, the treatment of people. So because Walkerton, although it is, a, you know, a smaller town or city, I'm not sure how much it's grown since then, but how quickly people were fined and jailed. And because of the spill that had happened into the water uh, supply and how just the government just ignores what is happening in Indigenous communities. So for me, my main passion is really advocating for equality in regards to environmental sciences, uh, challenging the government in creating better policies and systems and holding people accountable and educating people on what environmental racism is, along with my other part is that I love to work with youth and community. And as a ther- I'm also a therapist throughout the day, I've been in the social services field for close to 15 years now. So just, you know, raising other Indigenous voices and letting the youth know that they do matter and they do have value and they have purpose and trying to work in a way that can contribute to healthier lifestyles, more of a holistic kind of all around approach through an Indigenous cultural lens in regards to social work. So. Mm-hmm. So you are a social worker, yes? Yes. Yeah, I thought so. Just you were talking about like youth feeling like, or Indigenous youth in particular, feeling like they have a voice. Is that something that you felt when you were youth? Like, did you have that empowerment then? You know, I think there's a reason probably I was, the spirits told my elder to call me Thunder Women. (laughs) I was always, I'm the oldest. So I was always a little bit of a rebel. I definitely took the role of challenging and, uh, you know, beating down a few walls when I was young. And I think right from a very young age, that was something I did. But I didn't grow up in a very healthy environment. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up in a very impoverished environment. And although my father at times had a lot of money because he, you know, was a biker. And so of course the influx of money is one minute you have a lot of it, but as fast as it comes, as fast as it goes. And my parents were not together. So, and he spent a lot of time in jail. So, I mean, there was definitely little peaks (laughs) in my childhood, but I didn't recognize the neglect and the harm that was actually happening in those situations. So Going through a public school was difficult for me. I was very bullied. I did not 
stand up for myself in those situations because I never had a role model that, you know, told me that it's okay to fight back. It's okay to stand Mm -hmm. up for yourself and you're not these labels and you're not what people perceive just on the outside because of your clothes or the location that you live in or, you know, um, how your parents behave. (laughs) And so I, I think it probably wasn't until... I actually, uh, just after I had my son and left a very abusive relationship that I started to recognize that I did have self-worth and I had a voice and it needed to start being used. I just didn't know how that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so through my twenties, I, you know, like most 20 year olds trying to find yourself, your brain growth, still your two sides <laughs> of your brain still haven't come together yet. Um, so you're, you're trying to navigate those waters and then being a single mom on top of that. And finally, I just decided to go back to school with some help from a friend who encouraged me to go back. And then when I got into college first for social service work, it just opened my eyes to everything and really helped me understand not only what was going on with myself, but how people connect to others in their own environments and to the world when you come from continuous trauma in your life. And then I recognized and identified that I did have complex PTSD mm-hmm. and that that was going to be an ongoing thing. And this was going to be, you know, I was really going to have to challenge myself to be able to use proper coping skills and mechanisms. And one of those ways is empowering others and, um, you know, teaching others and learning from them as well. So yeah, did I always have mm-hmm. this voice? <laughs> no, not always. I mean, I shouldn't say that actually. I think that um, that probably should be rephrased, that the voice was always there. I just had to find it and then have mm-hmm. the courage to use it. Well, I was going to say, um, you have to feel safe to be able to, to use it. Mm-hmm. Like the courage to, but I think that a lot of that comes from like feeling safe in whatever your situation is to use it. Yeah as well. Yeah, it's a lot of survival technique. And I think that, you know, when you're surviving, you also have like dysregulated <laughs> emotions and attachments. So it's hard to know when is it appropriate <laughs> to really make noise. Yeah. And when when is it appropriate to kind of maybe sit back and be more of an observer. So that's something I like to work with youth on. And even, you know, people who come from backgrounds that have had any type of trauma, to kind of help them understand how they can, you know, use their, their whole personality and their whole spirit in finding that within themselves. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going back a little bit, but you kind of touched upon this kind of theme of like that meaning making in terms of we've had that come up so many times when people are talking about, you know, overcoming trauma that for a lot of people, there is this element of trying to do something like using your voice to advocate for others, or like Jen and I have this podcast that was born out of our own traumas. Mm -hmm. And like, part of that is like, we want to talk about trauma and we want people to like know how trauma impacts people. Like that's part of our meaning making, if that makes sense. And just because you don't think something was traumatic doesn't mean that it wasn't for someone else. Right. Which I think is a really big thing. It is huge. And I think the other piece to that is understanding that sometimes we may may not perceive things to be traumatic that have happened to us. Mm -hmm. But one of the important pieces in the way that I usually explain trauma to people who are new to the idea is to understand that trauma itself 
it doesn't sit in your brain as a narrative memory. So although we see it as a memory, trauma essentially comes through the five senses. So when that trauma is happening, it's focusing on which imagery was there. So whether it was red stop signs, whether it was darkness, it focuses on was there smells? What did it feel like? Uh, what was I hearing in that moment? And if there was a taste attached to that, and that all sits in the very, you know, I don't want to get too jargony here, but your basal ganglia. So the very bottom part of your brain, which we consider the reptilian part of your brain, and it literally is just your basic survival, fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. And so what ends up happening in a really great example of that is that, you know, if two kids are wrestling and one takes a pillow and puts it over the other kid's face. And that child is then tra could possibly be traumatized by the fact that all of a sudden they can't breathe. It's dark. They, they hear maybe mom screaming in the background, take that off, take that off. And then years later in life, all of a sudden they're putting on a t-shirt and the t-shirt gets stuck on their head. Their body isn't recognizing that this is a rational moment and I can easily take that t-shirt off. The trauma senses kick in and all it knows is that it's dark. I can't see um there's something i'm feeling something over my face mm -hmm. and maybe mom is in the background or someone's in the background saying well why don't you just take it off and so <laughs> our prefrontal cortex just shuts down and the rationalizing of oh i can breathe and i can just take it off kind of goes out the window and until we start to heal those pieces within ourselves and start to slowly process and feel differently about those situations, which we do with exposure therapy and somatic therapy, when done properly, we can rewire the brain to be able to feel safe when those things happen. But for a lot of people, I mean, this is a new term. Complex trauma is a new term. Developmental mm -hmm. trauma is an extremely new term. So there are a lot of professionals out there who are really wonderful, but they don't have the knowledge yet. They're not trauma informed or they don't come from a trauma lens. So they automatically will kind of go to things like, oh, well, you have borderline personality disorder or mm -hmm. you have bipolar disorder or it's just ADHD or, you know, so I think I'm trying to really understand what trauma is and like you said, um, how it affects our bodies and our brains and um, how if when we have very significant traumas and chronic traumas over a long period of time, but our brain doesn't fully grow, right? So for some people with developmental trauma, they have an organic brain injury. And so I think the other piece too is to be kind to yourself. That's something I really learned about my own traumas is I needed to be kind to myself I needed to have patience. I needed to gift myself the give of forgiveness mm -hmm. to understand that it's not that I don't want to do these things sometimes, it's that I can't. And so yeah. how do I navigate and work through that? Yeah. So I am familiar with the, the term complex PTSD, although I think you're probably our first guest who, who says that they have it or that they have been diagnosed with it. But the developmental PTSD, I have not heard of. And you seem really knowledgeable on the topic and we didn't invite you on to be an expert, but would you, no, but would I you mind just like taking I mean, a minute and like explaining that? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. So what happens is with PTSD, if it's, I don't want to say just, that sounds horrible, but if someone has been diagnosed with the label of PTSD, that's usually because it's been one incident. It could be a car accident that happened in their lifetime, but usually it's a singular um singular event that has happened in their lives that has caused a trauma. 
or trauma response. When we look at complex trauma, complex trauma means that it has been traumas throughout the lifetime. So these are things that have happened frequently, more than once. It could be within the same instance, uh, maybe from one person. It could have been, you know, maybe you had a very tumultuous childhood. Your parents weren't the best caregivers. And then all of a sudden you go into a high school relationship and then your boyfriend is abusive. And then, you know, that's kind of where complex trauma happens. Developmental trauma is different in the sense that it actually happens during a very specific time period in the, I guess, the growth of the brain. So much like when we look at things like fetal alcohol syndrome and things like that, there's a very, there's a very small window as to when the brain is growing and how these traumas affect the brain. But we, what's interesting about developmental trauma is that if the trauma happens, let's say at the age of three, while the brain is still growing and there are, you know, attachment issues and things like that, abuse, violence, maybe neglect, whatever's happening there, our brain starts to grow differently because it's trying to find ways to find that window of tolerance is what we call it, where our bodies can tolerate that. And then sometimes what happens is those parts of the brain aren't necessarily triggered until the later onset in life. So someone may have developmental trauma, but through the ages of seven to even 12, they seem to be functioning okay. Maybe they're in a a healthy, happy home now and everything's going well. And then at the age of 14, all of a sudden, behaviors start happening. And the parents are like, I don't understand. She was a good kid. Like we never, you know, never had any of these issues before. So then we have to go back and say, okay, well, what happened during the time when that brain was developing? Mm -hmm. Because in that sense, these delayed onsets are quite normal. And then we have to start looking at what's happening there. And what we are now also knowing is that the brain isn't actually fully forming until about the age of 30. We used to think it was around 25. And now we're knowing that it's actually not happening until 30. And I think that's why a lot of people too are starting to realize, wait, something isn't right. I'm not feeling good. I'm, you know, I'm feeling like I'm struggling a little bit in life. So I don't know if that helps um, explain the differences, but essentially that's the most layman <laughs> layman way I can explain that. That is like very interesting to me because like, I don't know if you know my story, but my husband was killed at work when my kids were four and seven, six. Mm-hmm. So that just like set off like all <laughs> kinds of alarm bells for me. <laughs> Of yeah, like, oh, so they're think, good now, but this is what I might have to be be mindful of and and look for. Yeah, I mean, like it's it's not a given. It's right. not a hundred percent. What we do know is that if a trauma happens for children during early childhood, but they're surrounded with nurturing supports and they're taught essentially that they can express feelings and they have someone they can go to. We don't see some of the behaviors that we would see in adulthood, like addiction, depression, anxiety, a lot of those, a lot of those things are processed through that love and and the caring that happens within the home. So I'm sure that (laughs) if that helps a little bit to call. No, I mean, and and more just like, it's just good to know, to be familiar with, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's very important. I mean, we can, I can use my, my own life as an example. And my, my sister has given me permission to speak about her situation is that I, in the very beginning of my childhood, my mother had met my stepfather, who's still in my life, 
when I was six months old. So up until the age of about four or five, um, I had what one would consider, I guess, a you know, middle-class family, um, loving grandparents, all of those kinds of things. And so a lot of my trauma started to happen around the age of four or five and then continued on right through up until teenagehood until I, well, actually in through to adulthood. <laughs> my sister, on the other hand, because they had split when I was young, my mom had my sister many years later and my mom, she was only in her 20s herself and navigating her own mental health. But the traumas were already happening in the home at that time when my sister was born. So I would have complex PTSD and my sister has developmental PTSD and she recognizes that she has the emotion regulation issues and she has not knowing if someone is safe or can I be friends with someone or sometimes, you know, we, even when we're young anyway, we make bad decisions (laughs) on who we spend our time with. So it's, yeah, it's interesting how even though, you know, my mother did the best that she could and we know that, that my mom loves us. Um, my upbringing in those years were very different compared to my sister's. And you can see that in the way that we process our emotions and our understanding of what our trauma is. Mm. So I have a, I had a, an arguably traumatic childhood myself and mm-hmm. I am five and a half years older than my sister. And I totally get what you're saying because up until for me, it was more like 11. Mm-hmm like our home was pretty stable and then it was pure chaos. But my sister was, was six. Right. And there's a big difference in terms of like our understanding of what was happening around us. Mm -hmm. There's a big difference in what we remember and even just how we were responding in that time, because those years, like it's a big age difference. Yes, it is. Right. So it absolutely makes sense. Cause like, sometimes we talk about things that happened and we have, we don't disagree about the facts, but like sometimes or like, yeah. Or sometimes I'll say something and my sister's a little more like, Oh, like I don't really remember that. Or I didn't really know that was happening because she wasn't old enough to like process where I kind of knew. And there were certain things even that I was like, no, wait, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. But she was so little that she almost thought that was normal. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does make sense. Yeah, I think it makes sense in the way that we grow up too. Um, you know, my sister uh, only recently as we started to really talk and help her process first her diagnosis and then also some of the traumas that have happened, you know, growing up in this idea that like even when you see the two of us, we're very, we're very different in the sense of the way that we carry ourselves, who we choose to hang out with. But what's interesting is she is seven years younger than me, I think, but I see her journey. I see it. And I'm like, that is completely me, seven but I know ago. it's going to take her a little bit. Yeah. A little bit more time to get to where she wants to be. But it's kind of interesting because I see it. I see, I'm like, oh, I see why you're doing this. I did that too. <laughs> and of course, you never want to be the mom, right? So you're just kind of trying no. to let, let them live their lives. But, but it's it, not it, a, it is one reason. It's not a huge age difference. I mean, I know people who have like siblings that are like 20 years older than them or whatever. But I think like six, seven years is like enough of a difference that you do have more of that parental almost role. You do. Right? Like, <laughs> Yeah. 
And I think when you're living in those situations, you automatically take on that role. And I think um, that's another big thing that really comes with trauma is shame and guilt and Mm -hmm. understanding um, what we should, you know, I don't even want to say what we should be holding on to because when things have to, you should, you don't have to be accountable to that at all. But essentially the idea of, you know, for myself processing my own traumas that like, you know, I should have been there for her and I shouldn't have left home at 15. How could I have left her in that home and all those things. And, you know, to have my therapist at the time, Lori Gill, who's actually, she's amazing. I just got to plug that in here. Lori Gill from St. Catherine's um, <laughs> at Attack. She's amazing. If anybody wants to look her up. And that's why I actually got certified. So I am certified in a very specific trauma therapy model, which is called integrative trauma and attachment therapy. Mm-hmm. And she had just let me know. She was like, but you were just a child, right? So would you expect your child to be able to make that decision and to be able to process that? And I, you know, of course I'm like, well, no, I, you know, I was a mom at 18. My kid's going to be 22 in March. And I'm like, please don't have children, child, (laughs) take care of yourself. But I I think about it and she's like, so why would you expect yourself to be able to do that? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's an interesting way to process it and to be like, okay, you know, I, I don't have to own that. And that, that isn't my fault. And, 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 but with that being said, as a loving sister now, and now that I know these things, I can now do the things that will help her have, you know, the quality life that she's looking for. Right. Mm-hmm. You said you were 15 when you left home. Mm-hmm. Where did you go? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm sorry to be so like straightforward, but like you're yeah. 15. So I'm assuming you aren't going to be renting an apartment somewhere. Yeah, I know. I couch surfed for a long time. You know, I never actually slept on the streets, but I definitely was transitionally housed, kind of not knowing where I was going to lay my head the next day. And the unfortunate part about that is that, you know, when we think about survival skills, shelter is one of the, the bigger pieces. And of course, you know, with the system at the time failing my family, and I say the system, I'm referring to the child welfare system, mm-hmm. um, you know, failing myself and my sister, we were kind of on our own. And so I just had, I navigated the fact that I was a stereotypical pretty girl. And I found comfort in the homes of my boyfriends. And so I would, you know, find older men generally, not, you know, not much older, but they would be like, I'd be 15. My boyfriend would be 19 um, or Mm -hmm. 17. I was 16 when I met my son's father and he was 23. And it was one of those situations where it was like, okay, well, he'll take care of me and he has a job and he pays for the bills. And the problem with that is that you also then, allow yourself to be taken advantage of in ways that you probably, well, you shouldn't be not probably you Mm -hmm. shouldn't be. And, and I did find myself in a very abusive relationship with my son's father. And yeah, it's just, it's kind of the way of the world. And then you're, you're out and you're, you're partying and you're getting into, you know, (laughs) trouble and things that you shouldn't be doing, but you, you do it because you know, you're hanging out with people whose parents will let you crash for a week or the night or, you know, and not wonder like where your parents are and, you know, why you aren't going home. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there was only one time I was uh, dating 
I would say a gentleman, but he was, he was 19. He was a kid too. <laughs> and, uh, very wealthy, very well-to-do family. Amazing. I said to this day, I still love his mom. And, uh, they did call, they called the authorities. I was 15 at the time and she had let them know what I had let her know and why I didn't want to go home. I, she, I, she felt very comfortable to talk to. So I had kind of filled her in and what was going on in my home. And um, she wanted to adopt me. And the CAS pretty much told her no, because my mom said that I had a place to come home to and that I had run away. And I did run away, but I ran away for a good reason. Because that you weren't safe. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. So yeah, I kind of couch surfed and made my way and then found myself in a relationship and then found myself pregnant. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't recommend moving out at 15 unless you absolutely have to, but I think now there's a lot more support for youth than there was when I was young. They didn't have the kind of supports that they do now and even just trying to get Ontario Works or at the time welfare uh, was the term. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you you had to go through a lot of hoops and they asked you a lot of questions and how can you don't live at home and like, well, you know, you should probably go back and there was no support there in that case. So I just mm-hmm. hope that for youth nowadays, um, you know, that they, they're able to reach out. And, and I always suggest that, you know, call the kids helpful line. I know that's one of those things that we see on TV, but it's real and it's helpful and follow up and follow through and reach out for supports when you need them. Well, I was going to say, I think that's sometimes even when there are supports, it can be overwhelming or hard figuring out how to navigate them Mm -hmm. um, or where you're supposed to go or start or anything like that. Like it can be that way for grownups. So I can't imagine what it would be like if you were 15. Yeah, I would say it's difficult. My father went through the same thing and that's, you know, he found brotherhood, right? Right. He became, he started hanging out with bikers when he was 16 Mm -hmm. um, because of his home situation. And that's, that's where he found it. He found brotherhood and they really made him believe that he was special and he would be taken care of. And boy, let me just tell you (laughs) for anyone listening, (laughs) don't get me wrong. I have a lot of friends who who are bikers and I love them, but it's definitely not as romanticized. I think as TV wants to make it, it, uh, they'll leave you high and dry. And that's what happened, you know? So, well, I was going to say, yeah. like, you're, you're, you said that your father went to jail on several occasions throughout your mm-hmm. childhood. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> so where were mm-hmm. they then, right? Yeah. yeah. Where I do think at least the media might portray that, like, if you're a member, that they're going to get you off and you're not going to mm-hmm. have to do any time because yeah. like, endless <laughs> no, so you're resources. Doing time. And- <laughs> you're doing time. <laughs> Yep. That's, that's a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so I know one of the things that you also advocate for is, is child welfare. I'm assuming because of your own experiences with it. One of my questions, like you, you said, child welfare had been informed by the, your boyfriend's mom, but that wasn't the first time that they, that you had contact with them. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's the, that's the sense I was getting from what you said. Can I ask if it was like the first nations child and family services, or if it was just public children's aid? So back then there was no child, there was no, um, 
First Nations driven kinship type of situation. Okay. One of the things that did happen when I was young was, uh, or I should say, I think it was actually before I was born. I'd have to clarify that with my mom. I was either just recently uh, an infant or not even born yet that the child welfare system did come to my mom. And they did say that there was a family that wanted um, a child and that I would be better off with a different family. And they did try to get my mom to adopt or to adopt me out. And they were, I think back then they were offering $10,000 or something. So oh, I don't know wow. what that equals out to, but listen, I'm worth a hell of a lot more than <laughs> Yeah, so it started very, very young, I think, too, because of my father's background, and also the trouble he was getting into. And then on top of that, my mom was, you know, she had also moved out on her own very early. She also had a very severely abusive childhood. And CAS or Children's Aid had been in my life since I, I honestly don't remember a time outside of maybe a little window of the age of like, as far as I can remember back to two maybe three or four years in that period where my stepfather had come in um, and they had been in my life ever since. So I would get school visits from them. They would, you know, so it's uh, yeah, it's definitely something that (laughs) I think we could do better at. Mm -hmm. I think the system needs a lot of reframing in regards to how they approach families. We're seeing (laughs) that things are, there are movement in regards to Indigenous communities having more control over um, what happens with the, the youth and infants uh, that are in the care of um, Indigenous families, but it, mm-hmm. it, it just needs to be so much better. But yes, mm-hmm. back then they did not have a chapter for that or a program for that. We were kind of all just put into to one yeah, area. And we yeah. know that in the 80s, that there was a, a second scoop that did happen with Indigenous children. And yeah, yeah it's just a really in, unfortunate story. That's the the whole, I mean, the 60s scoop is definitely a lot more famous. And mm-hmm. I might not do this justice, but for those of you who are listening who don't really know what happened, is that basically throughout the 60s in Canada, there was a big push to adopt Indigenous children out of their homes and put them into white families and it really mm-hmm. is an attempt at assimilation right yes. so we're stripping cultural them. genocide it is we're stripping these yeah. children of their culture and like they had commercials on tv advertising like children up for adoption yeah. like it was really horrible wow. um, and it is when you said that your mother was approached to put you up for adoption that was the first thing my mind went to was like oh my gosh like mm-hmm. she would have been stripped of her culture if, yeah. if that had happened, because they probably were going to give you to a white family. I'm assuming yeah. I'm making a lot of assumptions. Yes, there, no, I guess, I, I but-, think, but I think like the correlation is there, right? I mean, like, I, I don't think we can ignore that. And mm-hmm. although my father was in and out of my life, I mean, I really didn't start learning about my indigenous ancestry, even from him until I, I think I was like eight years old. And then really getting a good understanding of it closer to around 10 um, when I, you know, really started visiting with my great grandma, Ruby, who was also adopted, or I should just say taken. She was taken 
from the Halifax area. I, I got to be careful not to claim a community because we don't know exactly, but we do know that she was taken from there. There was a family uh, cousins, I believe, that were out there, the mother cells. And uh, I mean, she, she says that she was fortunate, you know, that her adoptive parents were very kind and did love her. They had lost a child and that was named uh, Madeline uh, Mother Cell. And then the child passed away. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> my great grandma was in the family and they, they named her uh, Mildred Madeline, Ruby Mother Cell, <laughs> which is kind of creepy in a way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to replace one child with another. And so, yeah, there's a lot of history around that. And, mm. um, you know, my great grandpa Fiddler um, was also Indigenous. We're still trying to locate uh, which nation specifically, but his father was from Saskatchewan. So if anyone knows a Peter Fiddler <laughs> from like <laughs> the 1900s, please tell me. Um, so yeah, so it's, uh, I, I definitely think that that, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to be completely saying like, you know, A equals B kind of thing, but the correlation that you're making there in regards to them just coming up to my mom and being like, hey, you know, you should probably adopt your kid out. It, it's just, it's a little too coincidental, I think. So adoption is expensive. And for the most part, Indigenous, the Indigenous peoples were not given the opportunity to be wealthy. Yeah. So, and I think too, I mean, these kids were stolen. Yeah. Like we, mm-hmm. we've, for most um, people that I know anyway, that I've been in contact with, when you mention a black car, they know exactly what you're talking about because the church used to go around with black vehicles. And when you saw those black vehicles coming into indigenous communities, parents would hide their kids. Grandparents would hide their children um, because they knew, they knew what these cars were coming for. And yeah, it's just a, it's a very uh, sad and violent history that's happened. So yeah, in regards to the child welfare system, it's something that I advocate for because I do think it needs a lot of reframing. Yeah. Because you said that you felt as though they had failed you. Yes, 100%. I had been in two foster care homes for very brief periods of time. Okay. And so when I say that they failed me is that they allowed me to slip through the cracks. They knew what was going on um, in the home. And I also I also want to be careful because I, I love my mom and she did the best that she could with what she had. And one of the things that I really challenge the children's aid system on is helping parents, mm-hmm. you know, taking the kids is, you know, when they are in abusive situations and things like that, I, I understand it. But if there's a negotiable piece where it's, you know, the neglect on part of that, maybe the parent doesn't know how to, um, you know, make bottles or per- buy healthy food or get their kids to school on time, we have to start looking deeper and saying, okay, what is it that the parents need? Like, what was their background like? And how can we teach parents who were never taught love to mm-hmm. love? Because it's there, right? We just have to help them navigate that. And that's one of the things the child welfare system is not great at. I know that I worked in it. Um, <laughs> I know thinking I can make change from the inside out. <laughs> Yep. And, uh, <laughs> and I think too, you know, their mission statement is to strengthen families. And I find that very laughable because most kids, they don't want to be taken from their homes. 
they want their parents to get better. Yeah. And we know that stable placements and stable housing is a key component to children having healthy attachments as they get older. So um, with the advocacy piece, yeah, we we are pushing for evidence-based research to be done and evidence-based solutions. Because we do know that in the last 40 years, there's very little research that's been done on what is happening to these kids as they're growing out of the system. Nobody follows them. Nobody knows if the policies and all the money that gets poured no, into you're the 18, system even see later. Yeah. yeah, right. And if you're somebody so, who's been like from home to home to home, then it's not even like you, you there's no attachment yeah. there to yeah. anyone. Yeah. And it's also interesting, just like you said, they haven't done any research in 40 years. Like a lot has changed in 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you know what you're doing is working if you're not evaluating it? And how are you building policy on things that you don't have any evidence on? And so when I started, actually, it was my my best friend, the one who actually um, made me go to school. <laughs> uh, so Jane Kaverikova, she's a PhD candidate at Western and a prof at Western. And she founded the Child Welfare uh, Political Action Committee. And when we say political, it's not because we side with any party, we're nonpartisan. What it is, is that we are lobbyists that actually go and speak with the ministers, with MPPs. So we're speaking Mm -hmm. with the politicians. We're not frontline workers. We get a lot of those messages. And unfortunately, that's just not what we do. And we talk about advocating for that research to happen. And we have people within our advisory team who are doing that research and working on that research. So that way we can start pushing the ministers and the MPPs to say, okay, these policies need to change and they need to start changing with you. And Mm -hmm. then we can do that trickle down effect because what we're seeing is that the statistics of these children that are aging out, it's not getting better. It's getting worse. So you're pouring money into a system that is not functioning properly. Let's fix that. Let's figure that out, right? And we've had really great response. We have a wonderful response from most of um, the ministers and the MPPs, and they're just trying to get their their heads around it too, trying to wrap around like, wow, I didn't know this. So they've been really supportive in the initiatives that have happened. And the Child Welfare PAC is also doing so much amazing work in regards to fighting and advocating and working collaboratively with post-secondary schools to get free tuition spots for Mm -hmm. foster kids and former crown wards. So uh, anyone of any age that's aged out or is aging out can have free tuition to go to school because we know that the financial pieces are barriers and to have those supports is a big thing as well. Yeah. Well, and if you're not properly supporting these kids as they become adults and then have their own kids, then it's just this circle that's just going to keep happening. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm just, you know, so many families and I'm thinking about all of the things you just told me about even your own family. You're like, oh yeah, well, my mom grew up in an abusive environment and while my dad's childhood, like And then you're talking about your great grandmother and what happened with her growing up. Like you can start to see the generational traumas happening. And then, you know, even you talked about this idea of like, well, how are we expecting people to parent when they, they don't know how to parent because it wasn't modeled for them or their own childhoods were traumatic. So where does that, where does that stop and how do we intervene there? And maybe education is one of those 
things. And like you said, like the child welfare, that idea of helping parents who need support because, Mm -hmm. well, especially just when you think of women and after you've had a baby, I mean, I, I refer to my own very difficult time after my kids were born and I had support and we had money and, you know, and so like if somebody, if I was in that position and didn't have support and wasn't comfortable financially, th- what would I have done? Yeah. Yeah. And I think <laughs> we, we need, yeah, we need to recognize too that intergenerational trauma is a scientifically proven thing. Mm -hmm. There have been many studies done on Holocaust survivors, and there is an actual change in genetic DNA in regards to stress, um, stress receptors and stress levels. So we do know that intergenerational trauma, it's in, it's in your DNA. It's a biological thing that happens. And as you said, you know, how do we prevent that from happening? How do we break that cycle essentially, and change that DNA uh, back into healthy. I don't even know how to, how to term that one. Um, <laughs> and so I think that that is a key component of it is like I said, it's, it's from the, the start to the end of feeling supported and knowing that you have worth and love. I won't speak to exactly what they're teaching the, the foster care parents and also um, foster kids as they're aging out now. But back when I even worked for Children's Aid, the transitional um, youth program had a book that they would give to youth aging out. And instead of it being, how do you apply for school? How do you look for housing? Or like the normal things that we would teach our kids. How do you get a loan? Uh, You know, how do you improve your credit score? These things that we would normally teach our kids. They're getting a book that specifically talks about what do you do when you get evicted? What are your rights when you get charged? What do you do if you get pregnant? So they're already setting them up up to think that these things are going to happen to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so these children are coming out of the system going, wow, I have a really great future. They're going, this world is really fucking scary. (laughs) Yes. And I have no support. I'm yeah. thinking, you know, you just triggered something with the the episode we recorded with this other Nadia who had experienced homelessness in her youth and she was in a foster home. This was in Europe, so it definitely sounded like the system was a little bit different, but her foster parent was like had to was teaching her what she needed to do to live on her own and he started like He taught her how to open a bank account, how to save money. He said, you know what? Like you're 17 now, you're going to be 18. You're going to age out of the system. Like, let me help you get a bank account. Let me help you save money for that. So you can get your first apartment. And he continued contact with her when she did move out on her own and continued Mm -hmm. checking in with her and guiding her and like, parenting her yeah I think it was like I think it was not even a foster parent it was like her like counselor or something it was Locked like care worker yeah something like that I forget the what system definitely to, like, sounded like it was a Belgium, little bit yeah. a bit different because mm-hmm. it was in Belgium but 
Um, maybe they have their stuff together. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, it's hard. But to wouldn't say, that be lovely can... if we taught oh, children would... how to like open a bank account? Like yeah. how well, do she you went from being homeless to now she has a high power job at Microsoft. She has a kick-ass job at Microsoft. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. She's so it's impossible the with the proper supports. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, it's one thing to say that kids are resilient. And I, I I'm careful to use that term because I don't want to encourage parents to be like, oh, they'll just get over it. They'll be fine because that's not the case. And we know that now that we understand Mm -hmm. trauma a little bit better, but it is one of those things that once you have those supports and you feel valued and you feel heard, you, you do your, your brain does start to function differently. And so we know that if negative affirmations can affect us, Positive affirmations do the exact same. The difference is, is as, as humans, <laughs> we love instant gratification. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to things that we want, we want it right away. But with negative affirmations, you know, somebody will tell you you're stupid and you don't believe it at first. You're like, I'm not stupid. What's wrong with you? But then when you continuously get told it, you start to question yourself. And then over time, you start to believe it. And then you find yourself in that cycle. Positive affirmations work the same, except just backwards, right? In the sense of like, you're going to say something nice. And then it's like, oh, this feels awkward. <laughs> I, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm not a smart person. Oh, this is silly. I'm not saying this in front of the mirror. But the more that you start to do it, you start to feel it and your brain starts to feel it. So then you actually start to become it and you start to believe it. So I always tell my clients, like, give yourself that, that patience, and, and the gift of kindness to know that this is going to be awkward, just like it was awkward when somebody told you you were stupid the first time, right? Like, yeah, you fought that so your body is naturally fighting these things, but over time, it will get better. So with you, or with with anyone who's come through that system, if they're getting the support and care that they need during those times, is it going to be perfect? No, are they the trauma still going to, you know, is the trauma still going to be triggered? And are you still going to have to use coping skills? Probably, right? But life can, you can have a much brighter future. So that's, that's essentially what the child welfare pack is fighting for. And now we're fighting for um, trauma informed policymaking for frontline workers. And, you know, and I don't want to put all of children's aid workers down. I've had some great ones. I've worked with some amazing ones, much like foster parents as well. They really, really, some of them really do care about these kids and follow through um, we just need to see more of it. Mm-hmm. And some of these people are working within a broken system. Yeah, I think yeah. so. And I think you probably get a lot of really great social workers or people who start out great so- as great social workers and have really great intentions. Mm-hmm. And then you're working within a system that isn't supporting you and truly supporting these families. Well, yeah, it's holding back it. what yes. you're able to do for people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole piece of it as well. So um, I hope you don't feel like I'm putting you on the spot here, but no, <laughs> um, you were just kind of saying like when people start to feel supported and start to feel safe, that that's when they can kind of, I don't know, like start to be build those successes and stuff. And I'm just mm-hmm. wondering like throughout your own life, maybe what some of those kind of key supports have been for you? Like, where was that kind of turning point in your life? I think there was a, there was a few times throughout my, uh, my growth up until now where that happened. 
Um, one, which, which people may find interesting, but my father was a very loving man. He was, so when he was present, <laughs> right. um, I felt very, very safe. Um, my father grew up in an, a, a bit of an abusive home as well. So he never um, yelled. Uh, he was never, he never physically disciplined me. Um, he was always very open to the idea of let's have a discussion. I'll share my stories with you and you can take what you want from it. You know, the idea of you're a very smart girl. So you know that this can happen if you make this choice, right? But here's another option. The choice is yours. So I, I mean, my father was, you know, when he started coming into my life at the age of seven and I started to go visit with him um, every other weekend, mm-hmm. I felt safe and I felt loved. So I did have a little bit of that aspect. And even when I would visit him in jail, <laughs> you know, he was, he was very good about not really letting me know what was going on. You know, he would tell me that, oh yeah, we had French toast for breakfast. And he, you know, when I'm, when I was little, he would let me, you know, think that everything was okay and everything was fine. Um, and then as I got older, I realized the food was not that great. <laughs> um, and then my mother also put me in the big sister program. And I had a big sister, her name was Mary. And, you know, she was a pivotal um, influence for me in regards to what, um, you know, essentially how to carry yourself, right? So she was Welsh. I grew up with very um, proper British etiquette in her home. Um, It was a way to eat and sit and do your hair. And then we would do my nails before church every Saturday night. And so there was moments within my life where I did have um, supportive uh, people. Mm-hmm. And although they were like very brief blimps in my life, they were during the times where my brain really was just taking everything in. And so it did give my body a break to be able to know that I could go to safe spaces when I needed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, it, you know, as since she, you know, when she stopped, because she was much older, and there was other things going on um, for her in the home, um, you know, since then, that's when just like, it just fell apart for me. And, um, you know, then my, my mom stopped letting me see my dad and like all this stuff was happening. And so it wasn't probably until I met Jane, when I was like, I, I had had my son at that point. So I would have probably been 19. Um, when I met Jane and Jane is just a powerhouse. Like we, <laughs> she actually grew up in the foster care system for almost her whole entire life, but she is very driven in the sense that she takes all of the traumas that she suffered and she puts it to good use. <laughs> she mm-hmm. really converts that energy. Well, and I just didn't, I was, I was a party girl. I didn't want to feel, you know, what had been there. And so Jane kind of got obsessed with, with school and academia and I got, you know, went, went towards friends and socializing, but we always stayed connected. And so it was her that finally was like, you need to get out of these relationships. Like these aren't healthy. They're not good, good men for you. These aren't good friends for you. And if I can do it, you can do it and really forced me. So I would say that was probably around the age of 25. Um, I think I graduated school at the age of 27. And yeah, that probably was when it really hit me that I was like, okay, life can be different and it can be good. And I've just, Mm -hmm. I've got to be accountable to the fact that yes, 
I did have a very traumatic childhood, but I'm an adult now and I have a choice to make. I can either continue to let it, um, you know, get in my way, but mm-hmm. it is my, it, it's not my fault that these things have happened to me, but it's definitely my job to heal myself and to make yeah. my life better for me and my son. So yeah, I would say probably around the age of 27, when I, when I really started realizing, okay, life can, can be different. And I felt, I felt supported and I felt, I started to really feel that self-love um, that I needed that I hadn't had for a long time. I think mm-hmm. it can be hard, like whether it's like one extremely traumatic event or bad thing, horrible thing that happens to you or living with, you know, the first half of your life in, in trauma, it can be hard to think, it can be hard to like plan or to look ahead to something that can be different. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was a, a troubled kid, you know, um, my mom says I was a handful. I definitely <laughs> was, but I don't, I don't hold myself accountable to a lot of it. Um, you know, I'd, and that's the thing, like, I'm, I try to be as open and honest about, you know, that we talk about safe sharing. So there are definitely things that I, I keep to myself, and I share only in certain certain circumstances, or if yeah. I feel like it will be helpful for others. Um, but for the most part, I mean, I want youth to know that, like, listen, I'm not this goody two shoes that is like, come to lecture you like, I got in fights in high school. I went to jail twice. Like I know what it's like to sit in a cell and have to, you know, strip down and change your clothes and hope the girl in the cell across from you doesn't beat the crap out of you when you come up. And although those were very brief stints, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, I spent years did hard time. In, in juvenile <laughs> detention. Um, it was enough to shock my system. And, you know, mm. I, so I understand when the kids come out and you're hardened a little bit and, you know, this, you have this protective layer around you because you need to, you need to be able to have it to survive um, the outside world and just everything that's coming at you. But, you know, it's one of those things that I kind of look back at and I think to my younger self and I just want to like smack her in the back of the head. What's wrong with you? Like <laughs> You've got so much potential, right? Um, and so that's why with the youth, like we, you know, we joke and I'm, I'm a swearer. That's (laughs) one of the things I know we talked about before we started, um, this, the show. And I just, because they need to be able to relate to you, right? This whole, I got into social work thinking I was going to be that Fraser Crane and I don't know if anyone knows who Fraser Crane is. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but I thought I was going to be that therapist, that Fraser Crane therapist that was going to sit and write on the notepad. And then I got out there and I was like, wow, people hate it. People hate social workers like that. They don't, <laughs> they don't want that, right? No. Like they want to be able to talk to you and to know that you can relate and you can understand. And if you can't, that you're willing to do the work to find out how you can. So for me, I just, I try to keep it as real as possible. And I just think to myself that, you know, I, I had the life I had because I can take all of that knowledge with me moving forward. And in my next life, when I choose my parents again, um, in our teaching, that I'll be able to bring all that knowledge into the next life. And hopefully, you know, it'll be a little bit easier. (laughs) I think I'm like, if this is, this isn't my first life, I wonder what my last lives were like, because I'm still learning there's still so much to learn (laughs) yeah yeah so oh that's funny um 
your name definitely suits you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Like it, yeah, it's, it, it, you're, you're, I mean, I, I feel like you're living up to it <laughs> for sure. It's a big responsibility um, in the indigenous community being gifted a name. It, it's different in, in all nations, how that happens and, you know, being disconnected from my community because of what had happened in my own lineage, you know, I didn't even know if I was ever going to get a name and a name is a, um, a very sacred thing. And I know even for my elder little brown bear, when I met him years ago, um, I remember he, he actually this turtle shell here that you see, mm-hmm. um, he gifted that to me and I was just not in I mean, I was in an okay place, but in regards to my culture, I really felt this identity trauma of not being able to claim it because I, I didn't have all the information I thought I needed. And I grew up urban indigenous and it was like, is this my right to claim it? And I remember he handed that to me and he said, you know, it was the first time I ever met him. He goes, I'll see you again. And we're going to make that rattle. And I, I, you know, I was like, okay, sure, whatever. For a workshop, but sure. Um, and then he, yeah, he had been a part of my life the whole entire time. And many people have, you know, requested a spirit name. There's a process for it, you know, gift the t- in tobacco tie with your left hand and you gift that to the elder or the healer. And sometimes it takes years before, you know, the spirits come and speak to them. And there's different ways you can do it. Shaky tent ceremonies, um, sacred fire ceremonies, and uh, it just so happened that I ended up getting my name um, two days after my father's birthday. My real father passed away in t- uh, 2001. What was really interesting was um, last year of June, I had been driving home from set. I was filming The Haunted Museum, which plug you can stream on Discovery Plus. Um, <laughs> and I'm in episode nine. It's really amazing. Produced by Eli Roth and uh, hosted by Zach Beggins. And I remember I was driving home. I was talking to my dad uh, in the car and I was just like, you know, dad, I hope you're proud of me. I just, you know, I just wish I could have a sign that would say that what I'm all the work that I'm doing, all the advocating I'm doing is, is okay. And I'm not harming community and I'm not taking from, from those who could be, you know, doing this work or all of that, because that's a really big thing um, for indigenous communities. Right. And that night I actually got the phone call or sorry, that morning I got the phone call and I, I didn't get a chance to answer it. So he left a voicemail message and he said, you know, uh, Ani Nadia, it's a uh, little brown bear. And um, the spirits came to me last night and he's like, I know we were going to try to do this in a sacred uh, fire ceremony, but for some reason they, they, they told me I had to tell you. And he did not know that it was my father's birthday. So there, it was just really interesting how that mm-hmm. happened. And then, yeah, he, he told me that my name was Thunder Woman and that comes with great responsibility because we are the messengers. We are the ones that make noise and bring awareness and make people listen, we shake things up. And Mm -hmm. that, you know, as I move forward, it's important how I use that name. And when I use that name, um, and that I'm paying that name respect. So yeah, it was it was a very um, interesting time, time for me to receive it. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. 
and I am actually thinking about the process of actually making the name change on my birth certificate. Wow. Um, but yes. I will be putting it would be in my Mi'kmaq uh, language versus actually in English. So it would yeah. be the, the Mi'kmaq spelling of it. And yeah, it's just it's it's super special because so many Indigenous people will never get their names. And just because of the the the, gen- the cultural genocide, as you had said, that's happened. And it's such a sad thing. And I hope more people do. But there are so very few respected elders that are publicly known. So I think it's hard for people to know where to go and how to connect with an elder. And again, it's not just something that's just given. You have to earn that name. That name comes to you when the spirits and creator feel like it, it is a good time for you. And I I just found it very interesting that it did take take me up until now to get that because I've had connection with many elders just in my time of working and even as a teenager and it was never something that was ever discussed or brought up or you know and I I, I think that's why I think it was a matter of you know it's a name I have to live up to and I have mm. to be ready to own that responsibility yeah. yeah I love it and I think you are I mean, yeah. thank you. Clearly, <laughs> thank you, you are. He says so too, but <laughs> that's good. I hope so. I think I that matters so. more than what, what we think, anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I love that you and Fallon have connected and you share that name. I think that's so, mm-hmm. that's like kind very, of magic, very cool. I think. Um, yeah. Um, which is really amazing. And then the name of, of your organization, could you share that again with, uh, that you're doing with your friend Jane with the Child Welfare? Yeah, so it's the Child Welfare Political Action Committee. Yep. Um, we shortened it to the Child Welfare PAC. Um, okay. So it is uh, the childwelfarepack.com and there's actually interactive maps on there that you can click on to see which schools are offering tuition and how many spots are there. Cause it's, um, I believe we have over 250 different um, spots with um, over 15 uh, universities and colleges across Canada. Beautiful. So we're really trying to branch that out a lot more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if people are also interested in getting into the initiative of creating a better Canada for all in regards to advocating for clean water within our Indigenous communities, um, I'm also an ambassador for Water First. And Water First is an organization that works in collaboration with First Nations communities. And that's a really, really big piece, something I want people to really research and understand that when you're donating or you're volunteering your time, that you are doing it with organizations that are actually working in collaboration with Indigenous people and have a First Nations advisory council because every single community that you're going to go into is going to have a different need. Mm -hmm. It's not a one, you know, sweet paintbrush that it's like, well, we did this in the last community, so it'll work for yours. That's And that's not even how Indigenous people work. We have to sit, and there's a process, and we listen, and we take the time to really take it in. And then there's, you know, the verbal negotiation of, okay, we were thinking this. Okay, well, this is kind of what we would like to have happen. Okay, how can we make that happen? Mm-hmm. So they do um, water science. So they work with youth and young Indigenous adults to understand what healthy water, lake systems, fish, fishery systems, um, all that habitat stuff. So they do all that wonderful science work. And then they also have an internship program for um, certifying youth and young adults. I'm not sure what the age bracket is there um, for becoming water operators. 
So uh, when they do have water systems um, in place or on uh, or near uh, their reservations, they're able to now be a certified water operator and run that within their own communities. And that is a transferable skill and certificate that can go anywhere. So, I mean, they could work yeah. in Toronto or they could work, um, you know, out in, uh, I'm going to say Grassy Narrows because it is one of the uh, most polluted waters, uh, ongoing, sorry, pollution of water that has happened to um, community. And, you know, it's just, it's so cool to see. And again, it's about passion and purpose. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what really helps ground us into ourselves and into who we are. And when we see these, um, you know, youth learning, from their own too. That's the big piece. You know, one operator gets uh, certified and then they're able to go and teach the other youth in the community. So when you're sharing that skill and knowledge, it just, it's such a beautiful thing to see. And the kids are so interested in it and it's really wicked. So the the donations um, definitely make a massive difference. It's a great initiative. Amazing. That's, that's really great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for, Thank you. Um, sharing your story with us and teaching us so much. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. It was a really great conversation. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Now What? If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. Until next time, remember, your hard times are the chance to write another chapter.